The Advent season is upon us. I, I love Christmas. I love the talk of Turkey because I do love the Turkey. And I love all aspects of Christmas. I, I rejoice in the uh, tradition that we have, uh, the Christmas trees, the baubles and things. I, I really enjoy those. Um, on Friday, we have the privileges as, as a, a couple, Santa and I, to fly off back to South Africa for Christmas. We are going back to the land of sweaty Santas. Um, I always have sympathy for, for the Santas in South Africa. They walk around in these red suits with their Wellington boots on and fur around their necks, perspiring in 30 degrees. And by this time next week, hopefully, we will be in 30 degrees and we'll be enjoying that aspect. But the reality of Christmas is we are looking and reminding ourselves of the incarnation of God. And we are remembering that he came to earth in the form of a baby who was given the name Jesus. And as we, as we look at this time and as we think about it, it's, it's interesting to me that he came to a nation who were waiting for him, in the sense that the Jews had for centuries been awaiting a Messiah. The books that they had of the Old Testament were, were full of prophecies about the Messiah. They'd been told he was coming. They were expectant. In fact, they were longing for him to come. And yet the reality is, by the time he had finished his ministry on, on the earth and went back to heaven, at that time, only about 120 people had really got it. Because when the Holy Spirit fell at Pentecost, there were about 120 people gathered together who were ready to take out the message of the reality of who Jesus Christ was. In spite of the fact that in the time that Jesus ministered, he was, he was a high-profile person. Israel knew about him. The Jews knew about him during the three years that he ministered. He spoke to crowds of thousands. He had, he had done amazing things. He had performed miracles. He had, he had done things that had left people astounded. And yet, at the end of his ministry, most people who had heard about him or seen him still didn't get it. There was just a small group of people who got it. And you, you wonder why that is. What blinded people? And the truth of the matter is, very often we only see what we want to see. Or we see what we're expecting to see, or what we're told we should see. I thought about running a clip, but I just thought it would be too complicated. Some of you will have seen it. But there's quite a well-known clip, and people have made modern versions of it. But it, it's used to talk about... Uh, cognitive expectation, and it, it's a clip uh, that is used by speakers, and they tell you you're going to see a clip of two groups of people playing basketball, a team dressed all in black and a team dressed all in white. It's a black and white clip, the original one. And the instruction that you're given at the beginning of the film clip is that you need to look very, very carefully and count how many times the people in the white team pass the ball. And if you watch it for the first time, and I'm spoiling it for you now, spoiler alert, you will be counting away as the ball is passed. At the end of that, they run it back and they say to you, right, now just watch the clip. And when you watch it the second time, you realize that in the middle of this basketball match, while the ball's being passed and you are carefully counting how many times it's passed, a guy has walked right through the middle of the game wearing a gorilla suit. And at least 50% of people who watch that clip don't see the gorilla because they're not looking for it. It's not what they are expecting on a basketball court. I was reading an article recently. I'm, I 
During the summer, I'm a fair-weather rider, but I love my motorcycle, and I'm out on my bike in the summer. And we've got to be really careful riding on two wheels because lots of accidents occur because drivers pull out in front of motorbikes from intersections, and the standard answer is, I'm sorry, mate, I didn't see you. And I read an article written by a fighter pilot who's also an accident inspector, and he spoke about the fact that the way that we see, in reality, as our eyes move, there are times that we see nothing. But our brain fills in, based on what we last saw and what we expect to see next, it fills in a picture for us. And if your motorbike happens to appear next to the pillar of someone's windscreen while your brain is telling them they should see something else, they literally don't see you. It is a sad truth that Jesus came and walked on this earth and did all that he did, and not everybody got it because he wasn't necessarily what people were expecting. What I'd like to do is look at a couple of verses of people who encountered him, but just to set the, the, the tone, let's go to the book of Luke chapter 2. Um, and reading from verse 6, it says, While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn a son. And she wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in a manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what they had been told about this child. You know, I have, I have a, a lot of unanswered questions, things that I'd like to know. And I wonder what happened to these guys after this. Did they keep track of Jesus? Did, were, they, were they around when his ministry began? Did they recognize him? Did they, did they remember what his name was and wait for the manifestation of this being the Messiah? We don't hear about them again. Was this just a brief encounter? Was this something special that happened in their lives that they look back on, but it didn't change their lives? If we, and I'm going to be jumping through quite a lot of scriptures, but if we move on, in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 1, it says this, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose. We've come to worship, and we know that they went and they brought him gifts and they worshipped. But what happened afterwards? When Jesus was on the cross, where were they? Were they aware of him? Had he made any difference in their lives whatsoever? Let's keep on looking at people who were expecting him. If we look in Luke chapter 2 and verse 25, now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon. He was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts, and when the parents brought the child, Jesus, to do for him what the custom of the law required, 
Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared. Continuing in that line, there was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was very old and had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and was then a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming upon them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. This group of people that encountered Jesus, and we're going to look at a, a set of people who encountered Jesus and what they thought of him, had an awareness of, of who he was. They had been made aware by God that this was the Messiah. They had an encounter and they actually knew who Jesus was. But we don't know or hear about what the fruit of that was because it was a brief encounter. And each of them had an expectation of what the Messiah should be. Each of them had an expectation of what he should do and what his role should be. And that had been built on differing circumstances. I'll come back to that. I want to keep going through the Scriptures, and I want to look at another group of people who encountered Jesus along the way. Because as he went through his life, you would know, different people met him in different ways. When he starts his ministry, we read in Luke chapter 4 and verse 22, all, he goes into his own town. He goes into Nazareth where he has grown up. And he starts preaching in the, in the synagogue. He goes in, and he has that wonderful moment when he says to him that this scripture has been fulfilled today. It says this, all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? They asked. And Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote the proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself, and you will tell me, Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his own hometown. And he speaks on, and it says in verse 28, All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up and drove him out of the town and took him to the brow of a hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. In this encounter, Jesus meets with a group of people whose opinion of him is formed by what they've seen of him as a young boy and what they want him to be. This is Joseph's son. And if he wants to be anything else, he has to prove himself to us by doing some miracles. We've heard he's a miracle doer. So come on, prove yourself to us. Do some stuff. Become somebody that we can say, this guy came from our village and he comes and does miracles here. And when Jesus refuses to prove himself, they go from being curious and impressed to being angry just like that. And they do not accept him. They do not listen to what he's saying. They are not changed by his words. They, are not, they do not have the benefit of the Messiah in their lives. Instead, they seek to kill him. And he has to walk away. Because in their mind, the son of Joseph had to behave in a certain way. He had to have a certain... He had to defer to them. They were the people who'd seen him grow up. There had to be a special way in which they treated him. If he wasn't prepared to do that, if he wasn't prepared to, to turn on the magic, then they weren't going to accept him. And they saw him in a particular way. Let's move on. I know I'm skipping through scriptures, but I want to look at a number of different people. In Luke uh, chapter 4 and verse 42, 
actually verse 40. He's gone from here, he's gone into the home of, of, of Simon Peter. There's been a healing of Simon Peter's mother, and people hear about this, and it says, at sunset, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness, and laying his hands on each one, he healed them. Moreover, demons came out of many people shouting, you are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because, he, because they knew he was the Messiah. At daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place, and the people were looking for him, and when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns also, because that is why I was sent. There was one reason why they tried to keep him there, because he was healing people. And so their perception of Jesus was, he's meeting my particular need now. We would like to have a healer in our town. And so, in spite of what he might have said, in spite of what he might have taught in the synagogue, in the synagogue they did not want to listen to him, but when he healed... We want you to stay with us because we need a healer in this town. And so their perception of Jesus was, this is a man who meets my needs right now. And therefore, I want him in my life, not necessarily as a Messiah, I want him in my life as a healer. And Jesus has to say to them, I have a broader calling. I need to be moving on. Luke chapter 5 and verse 30. Jesus has just called Levi, and Levi invites him to his home. And Levi was a tax collector, somebody unloved and unwelcome. And so the only people he can invite to the banquet when Jesus comes into his life is other people who are unwelcome, other tax collectors. And so there's a big party of the great unwanted taking place. And Jesus is right there in the middle, and the Pharisees come to him. It says, Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house. And a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and teachers of the law belonged to their, belonging to their sect complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, It's not the healthy you need a doctor, but the sick. These group of people, when they encountered Jesus, they had a different desire. They wanted him to be like them. That was what they wanted the Messiah to be. Somebody who affirmed who they were. And so their challenge, when Jesus comes into their lives and Jesus begins to change things in their, cir their circumstances, their response is to say, but he's not like us. He's not what we believe a Messiah should be. He doesn't meet the criteria. He doesn't wash his hands in the right way. He doesn't hang out with the right people. He doesn't avoid, you know. Some people, they, they, they measure their godliness as the people that they avoid. Um, I've never seen with people like that. Therefore, I'm godly. That's what the Pharisees were like. I hang with the right people, I know the right people, and I avoid the right people. And when Jesus didn't do that, each of these people that we're looking at so far was having an encounter with the promised Messiah, with a person who had been prophesied and talked about for centuries. And each of them is responding in a particular way because of a preconceived idea that they have or response to what he is or isn't according to what's going on in their mind. They're seeing what they want to see, and they're responding to him in the way that they feel is appropriate for them. I want to read from Luke chapter 19 and verse 37. 
says, when he came near the place where the road goes down, the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Jesus is approaching Jerusalem. He's coming towards the end of his ministry and he comes in and for the first time Jesus is greeted as a king. And people are crying out and saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I always find it really interesting. Crowds in Jerusalem are welcoming him. His disciples and all those who've seen him perform miracles and people who've seen him in his heyday are waiting at Jerusalem and they're throwing down palms on the ground and they're throwing down their coats on the ground and they're welcoming in this person, and they are calling out in public that he is the king, and that he comes in the name of the Lord. In a matter of days, the crowd will be baying for his crucifixion. In a matter of days, no one will be proclaiming his king. In fact, when it is written above his head in mockery that he is the king of the Jews, people use that as something against him and something to revile him for and something to criticize him for. What happened? What changed? And to understand, it's possibly necessary to have a little book at what, look at what the perception of the Jews was as what their Messiah should be, and look at their history. When Jesus arrived on the earth, when Jesus was born, he brought to an end a period of time which some theologians call the silence, a period of centuries in which the prophets never spoke. In Israel's history, from when God first came to Abraham and began to talk to him, God had spoken to Israel through prophets and through their leaders. And he had told them what they needed to do, what they were doing right, what they were doing wrong, and he warned them. But as time goes by, through the time of the judges and the kings, Israel becomes so hardened and so irresponsible and so disrespectful towards God that eventually the catastrophe of the Babylonian Uh, conquering and, and exile takes place. They come back, but things are never the same. And the prophets speak and the prophets speak and people don't listen. And then comes a time when John the Baptist comes and says there hadn't been prophets before him for a long time. It goes quiet. And Jesus comes into an Israel where religion had become tradition. It had become religion. It had become following the rules because they had no new perception of who God was. No one was coming and saying, this is the word of the Lord. And so they would go back to what was written before and they would try and put it into some kind of a ritual or a a performance. And they were waiting for the Messiah to come. But in their perception of what the Messiah should be, they did not look ahead, they looked back. And Israel had a history of saviors. When Israel went into the promised land, in the time that's recorded in the book of Judges, when Israel went in, they went into an area where they were surrounded by enemies. The Hittites and the Hivites and the Jebusites and the Amalekites and several other Hites and Tites that, that, that lived in that area that all meant them harm. And God had said to them, if you obey me, I will be your God and you will be my people and I will look after you. But if you walk away from me, these people will come against you. And time and time again, you look through the book of Judges, it's one of the saddest books that you can find in the Bible because time and time again you hear Israel sinned and God allowed their enemies to overrun them. And so whether it was the Philistines or the Amalekites or the Hittites, somebody would come 
and they would bear down on them and they would, they would hold them captive for a period of time. And then Israel would cry out to God and God would raise up someone to save them. It would be a Deborah or a Barak or a Gideon or a Samson. Somebody would rise up and God would anoint them and they would come as a savior. Gideon came as a savior to Israel. A scared guy hiding in a wine press. And the angel of the Lord appears to him and says, Hail, mighty man of God. And I genuinely think Gideon went and looked behind him because he wasn't. But God anoints him and raises him up and he raises an army and God pairs it down to 300 people and they deliver Israel and they restore the geographical kingdom of Israel. They, they get back in charge. At the time that Jesus came to the earth as Messiah, Israel was looking for a Messiah. But they were looking for someone who would come as a king of the geographical nation of Israel and would cast out their current group of enemies, the Romans. That's what they wanted. When people spoke to Jesus, when they spoke, are you going to restore Israel? Are you going to restore Israel? When Jesus is coming into Jerusalem here and people are hailing him, they, they're looking at this and they have anticipation. It's almost the Passover. There's something symbolic happening here. Jesus hasn't come to Jerusalem for a long time. He's on his way in. Crowds are gathering from all over. This is where the revolution starts. Jesus is going to come in and somehow he's going to be the next Gideon. He's going to call together an army. He's going to overthrow the Romans. He's going to destroy the power of the Roman army. We are going to be free, and we are going to be the nation of Israel again. And he will be king, and he will ride on his horse in front of us into battle, or whatever it might be, and we will be God's chosen people in God's chosen land, and the old covenant will carry on as it was. That was their expectation. They expected him to come and stand up to the Romans. They expected him to call people around him who would fight. Even his disciples expected that. What does he do? He comes and he teaches, and when he's arrested, he doesn't fight back. He does not call down the legions of angels that have been waiting. He does not destroy. You know, I have this picture of the crucifixion of Christ with this group of Roman soldiers standing at the bottom of the cross, thinking that they're keeping him up there on the cross. Jesus could have decided at any moment now, and all that would have been left of that contingent of Roman soldiers is a smoking crater in the ground. He could have done that, but he doesn't. And that doesn't fit the picture that people had of what they wanted the Messiah to be. And when he doesn't do that, and when he's standing with Pilate in front of the crowd, and he's bleeding, and he's torn apart, and he's not doing anything, some of them become disgusted. And instead of saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, they join the crowd and they say, crucify him. He doesn't fit the picture of what I want him to be. Therefore, he can't be my Messiah. Because he just doesn't fit. Let's have a look at something a bit different. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? 
And Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. Peter speaks for a group of people and they're small, but this is a group of people who have met Jesus and they've stayed. He's changed their lives. They've encountered him, and that encounter has decided how they will live from that time on. A group of people who said, we will leave the way that we were, and we will give our lives to be with you. And as a consequence, they are changed. They take him for all that he is. They take the responsibility of being with him. They give up what they want to have. They give up what their preconceptions were. And Jesus changes their lives. And as a consequence, these people don't have a brief encounter with Jesus. They have an encounter where when they go to bed at night, he's there. When they wake up in the morning, he's there. These people spend time with Jesus in a way that was not just the big things, but it was the small things as well. They laughed together. They cried together. They talked about their families And they got to know the reality of this person so that Peter speaks from a knowledge that is intimate and he says, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah. And Peter is a different person. We live in a society in which almost anything can be tailored. Almost anything can be fitted to our needs. You can can build your life as you want it. You can put what apps you want on your phone, You can put what programs you want on your computer. You can have your car just like you like. You can do your house just like you like. And everywhere we go, we have things as we want them. And as a consequence, in this greedy society that we live in, sometimes when we preach Jesus, we preach him as whatever you want him to be. Sometimes we preach him as the celestial answer to all your problems. Just accept Jesus, and if you want, he will be your healer. If that's what you want, Jesus will be your healer. If you want him to be your warrior that overthrows the Romans, then that's what he will be in your life. You choose what your Messiah should be. And in thinking about what I would, if I was to give it a title, call what I was saying this morning, I would have said to you, so what do you want Jesus to be? When you're going into the Advent season, as we're going into Christmas, and you look at this baby born, how are you responding to this person? What are you seeing and what are you not seeing? What is your preconception of what Jesus should be in your life? How do we treat him? Both those of us who have already invited Jesus into our lives and those who may be here who have not need to look at what our expectations of Jesus are. Jesus touched and healed and filled people's lives. He supplied their needs. He fed them. He had some of them walking on water. And that happened because of who he is. Where Jesus is, things change. He's the Son of God. He never switches off being God. If there is pain, he's a healer. If there is a lack, he's a supplier. He's compassionate. Jesus doesn't stand by and have injustice take place in front of him. And for many people, as he walked the earth, they looked at what he was doing as the main reason he was there. When people came and said to Jesus, stay here, he said, no, I've got to go and preach, because he had come to introduce the kingdom of God. He had come to restore a relationship which God had had with Adam and Eve and which was the intended relationship we should have in which he was king. But while he was here, he does change things because of who he is. 
Jesus never comes, God never comes as a sample. When I was young, when people flew on aeroplanes, everything was in these little miniature, little miniature um, condiments and so forth when they served the meals. And people would come back with souvenirs for the children with little pots of jam and so forth that were like miniature representatives of the real thing. And sometimes I used to think as a child that when Jesus came to all of us individually, we each got a little miniature of Jesus. You know, Jesus, I had my little pot of Jesus. But that's not the way that Jesus manifests himself. When Jesus manifests his presence, he's the healer, he's the ruler, he's the king. He's everything. And therefore, he changes circumstances. But people were inclined to latch on to what he had done in their environment, and that's what they wanted him to be. And that's all they would allow him to be. I want to challenge you at this, at this point. Whether, you, whether you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior or not, what are you allowing Jesus to be in your life? What are you allowing that baby? Is, is he just that baby and it's good to have Christmas time and we can sing about him? Is he just what he did when you first met him? Maybe you were going through a crisis and Jesus brought peace into your heart. So now he's someone you turn to just for the crisis times. He does all of those things. But that's not all he is. The people who recognized him for who he was were the people who said, we have met the Son of God. And that requires a response from us, which is all of mine becomes all of his. And he can do with it what he wants. I will leave my nets, I will leave my boat, I will leave the catch of fish he's just given me, I will leave my family, and I will follow him. Whatever that cost might be. And as a consequence, what I will have is all of him, and he will change me in a way that will be a blessing to me. You know, while the disciples were with Jesus, he supplied their needs, he kept them healthy, he protected them, but there was a cost. That cost was their lives were his. And we sell a cheap salvation when Jesus is presented as just the healer, just the supplier. Come to Jesus, he's a slot machine, you put a prayer in, you get out what you want, and that's all he is, that's the Messiah. God's celestial slot machine. What's your problem? Come to Jesus, he will fix it. Jesus does restore us. Jesus does change our lives because of who he is, because when he's with us, he's all of what he is. But to know him and to respond to him as Messiah and to make him more than just a baby lying in a manger requires our whole lives. It requires that cost that they have. You know, I, I often tell a story a very simple one, because I, I work mainly with children, but I, I, I tell a modern-day parable about a guy who invited Jesus to come and live in his house. And he said, Jesus, I'd like you to come and live in my house, and I'm going to build you a very nice flat in the upper story. I'll build you an apartment. And it was a lovely apartment. It was very well appointed. It had all the mod cons. Um, it had a nice soundproof door so Jesus could have privacy. And he installed Jesus in the flat in the upper story of his house. And one afternoon he was sitting watching television and there was a knock on the door and he opened the door and there stood the devil. And he said, hi, I've come to trash your house. And he walked in and ripped down the curtains, broke the television, pulled up the carpet, smashed the crockery, went upstairs, messed around, but he didn't go into Jesus' apartment. Came down and as he left the debris behind him, he said to the guy, I'll see you tomorrow. And he left. Door closed, the guy flew up the stairs, banged on Jesus' door. He says, the devil was here, he wrecked my house. Jesus said, oh. He said, where were you? He said, I was in the apartment you built for me. 
said, what am I going to do? He said, I'll help you fix your house. So he helped him put his house back together. The guy said, you know what, Jesus, why don't you take the whole top apartment? You can have the whole top floor. I'll give that to you. And so they sorted it out. Jesus helped him, and everything was shipshape. The next day, as he was watching Jeremy Kyle, on the door, opened the door, there was the devil. He said, hi, I told you I'd be back. Came back in, and he trashed the whole bottom story. Same way, wrecked everything. Didn't go upstairs. The moment he closed the door behind him, saying, I'll see you tomorrow, I was up the stairs to Jesus. He was back. Where were you? He said, I was up here in the apartment that you gave me. So what do I do now? He said, well, let me fix your house for you. And then he said to him, here's the deal. Why did you just give me your house? You can live in it with me. You can have the run of all of it. But it's my house. Sign the deeds over. Give it to me. And so he did. He said, I've got nothing to lose. Tomorrow everything goes again. And so Jesus fixed the house up, they signed the deed, and next day, knock on the door, and the guy thought, it's happening again. And as he started for the door, there was a step on the stairs, and Jesus said, hold on, it's my house, I'll open the door. Opened the door, and you can imagine what happened. There was no sign of the devil except a little puff of cloud and dust as he ran away. And it's a very simple story that I tell to to children. But basically what we're saying is this. Our response to the Messiah is to give him everything that we have because in as much as we allow him to be everything in our lives, that's when he manifests as all that he is. If you've come to Jesus with your life and you said, Jesus, I need a healer, or Jesus, I need a supplier, or Jesus, I need a comforter, yes, he will be those things because he's loving and he's compassionate and he will do that. But you won't get the whole deal. And you won't have the fullness of it. It will be a brief encounter. Those first people that we read about, they met with Jesus. The shepherds, the magi, Simeon, Anna, they met with Jesus. But it was a brief encounter. He was there and he was gone. And they knew who he was. There were others that when he came into their lives, they said, no, we're not responding to you because you're not what we think you should be. You're just the son of Joseph. There were others who said, if you want to be my Messiah, you've got to be like me. You know, it's amazing. We're told we created in the image of God. But we so often try and make Jesus be in our image. Surely Jesus can't expect this because I wouldn't expect it. And we try and make God in our own image. But those people who encountered him and looked at him, and when he said, come with me, they said, that's it. Everything is gone. All of what you are is what I want. They were the people who experienced the fullness of who he is. And that's my challenge to you. I don't have a deep theological revelation for you this morning. I want to ask you the question. So right now, who are you making Jesus be in your life? What part of your life have you got him installed in? What part of your life have you made available to him? And what part of your life have you closed off and said, sorry, I don't feel a need for you to be in this part because I haven't experienced a distress in that area. Have you compartmentalized him? As we approach Christmas, are you you busy installing him into where he needs to be through the season? When you go into your place of work, do you install him? Do you, you plug him into that part of the office that you need him to be in or that part of your professional life? To our shame, I guess all of us, if we're honest, We'll see something of ourselves here. 
Jesus where we want him, when we want him, how we want him. And quite simply this morning, I would say to you, if you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then don't let this be a brief encounter with who the Messiah is. Don't let Christmas be a time that you just come in and and listen to some carols and it makes you feel all warm inside and you hear about the wonderful love that God has for you and you enjoy it at the time and maybe you even have a tear or two in your eye when the children sing and then you go home and it's made not a blind bit of difference in your life hasn't changed. He's not been your Messiah. He's been a brief encounter. He's been a sideshow. He's been something that's been interesting along the way. If you've never accepted Jesus Christ into your life, then I would say to you, don't leave today without doing that. And at the end of the service, there'll be an opportunity for you to come and have people pray with you. But I'm guessing that a lot of people here do have Jesus in their lives. And quite simply, I would ask you to review what have you made him? What design have you had for Jesus? And I would encourage you just to break that mold and to break that. It's a great joy when we experience Jesus fixing one thing in our lives, but when that's where we stay and when we don't move on from that. Now, it was interesting. When Jesus went up onto the Mount of Transfiguration, he took up three of his disciples with him, Peter, James, and John, and as they were there, they saw his countenance change and they saw something of the glory of Jesus as he is in heaven revealed. And their response was, let's build some tents and stay here. And I would encourage you, if you have had an encounter with Jesus and it's been amazing and you've, you've seen the glory of Jesus in your life, don't want to build a tent and say, Lord, it's a good place to be, let's stay here. Move on with him. Allow him to guide you, allow him to take you forward. Allow him to be all that he wants to be. Don't have that blind spot where you can't see all that he could be because you're not expecting it. Coming from from where I come in the world, those of us who come from South Africa, there are quite a lot in this church, would know about the Sangormas and the witch doctors and people that they, they have in Africa. And what always strikes me about them is they have a great deal of ritual around them and fear to keep people away from them whether it's the huts that have the the skeletons and and, and the skins and things on them. But really, in all of the ritual and so forth, there's an attempt to keep people away in fear because if you come close, you'll find there's actually nothing there. There is no power. We have a Messiah who says, you can come as close as you like, you can dig, you you can examine, you can scrutinize who I am because the more you look at Jesus, the more is revealed and the more that there is for us to sustain ourselves in. And I would say to you, don't stand back at your first encounter and say, that's all I need. Just walk right into the fullness of Jesus Christ and allow him to change your life.